Well, let me welcome everyone. If you are new or visiting our church family tonight or you're joining us online for the first time, my name is Aaron. I have the privilege of being the pastor here at Coastline Church, and we're glad that you chose to be with us. Those of you that are online with us tonight, wherever you're at, just know we miss you and we look forward to when you can come back and join us physically. A couple updates before we jump into the message that I want to I want to touch base on is we are relaunching our prayer initiative, all of our prayer strategies and vision this fall. One of the things that COVID did, not just to our church, but churches all over America, is it, is it tried to undermine them spiritually. And if you look at the prayer culture of Coastline, prayer is what built this church. We built this church on 21 days of prayer, praying every week corporately as a church family. It was the foundation of who we are. And during COVID, we lost a lot of that through a whole variety of reasons. And this fall, we want to roll out stronger than ever with prayer. And so we have a vision that we're going to be rolling out. And in the meantime, uh, as we prepare to, to roll it out and really redig the wells of prayer in our church, we're going to have Wednesday mornings at 7.30 a.m. I'm going to go live on Instagram, and we're going to receive communion together, and I'm going to pray with you together like we did last year during COVID. We're going to do that again for a few weeks as we are preparing to roll out our full prayer strategy, building up intercessors, building up prayer teams, uh, building up the entire prayer culture of our church. To me, that is the number one thing as a church that we have to rebuild coming out of COVID is we've got to regain our prayer culture that made this church what it was. And so we're going to be leading hard this fall to do that. But in the meantime, I want to invite you to join me on Wednesday mornings at 7.30 a.m. We're going to receive communion together. We're going to pray together uh, as we gear up to roll it out. And then our men's boot camp is starting back up this fall every Friday morning at 6 a.m. I want to invite all of the men of our church. It's not a group. It's a gathering of men to prepare uh, and train and build ourselves to lead with what is about to come in our church. We know that this building is going to give us a harvest of people, and we want to be prepared. And it's going to require all hands on deck. And so I'm inviting all the men to come to as many boot camps as you can this fall. Every Friday at 6 a.m., come when you can. And we're going to talk about leadership. We're going to talk about what it means to be a man in the culture today, our role to lead and build this church that God has given us. So join us on Friday mornings. Now for men, we've got to do it every Friday. Women, they only need one night. So they've got a night coming up this week. They just get things a little bit quicker than men. And so there's a women's night this week doing the very same thing. And so women, I encourage you to go on the website and find out about that. But this is an all-hands-on-deck season because we are about to see a harvest. And God put a mandate on my heart uh, this year that we are to go after the lost in our community like we've never done. There are people dying and going to hell, and they are more hungry for God than ever before because of what we just went through in 2020. And we want to see this church filled with people that have never been to church before. We're not looking to reach Christians in our community. There are people who've never been to church before. They don't know Christ. They don't have any relationship with Him at all and didn't grow up in church. And God, God's put it on our heart as a church to create a church where lost people can find Jesus. And we're going hard this fall to do that, but it's going to take all hands on deck. We all got to be ready. We all got to be trained. We all got to be prepared. So I want to invite you to be a part of that. 
I hope you got your notes tonight. We are looking in the book of Ephesians. We're carrying on in chapter 4. Uh, very, very practical message tonight, so I encourage you to take notes. If you got a Bible, what's become tradition for us is we declare God's Word over ourselves as we move into the message. And before we do this tonight, let me just ask you for a moment, what would your life look like if you really, if what we're about to say was really true? Uh, you, 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 for many of you, you've heard us do it week to week. What would your life look like if it was really true? Well, the good news is that it is really true. What would your life look like if you believed it, if you activated it, if you leaned into it and made it a reality for you? Let's say it together. If you've got a Bible, hold it up with me. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Holy Spirit, teach me God's Word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's dive into the Word today. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to pick up the last half of the chapter today. Before I get into it, let me ask you a question. Have you ever wanted to change an area of your life? Is there anything in your life right now that you wish you could change? Like, if I could just change this, this, this habit, this addiction, maybe it's a, an emotional thing that you're going through, maybe it's a fear that you constantly deal with, has there ever been anything in your life that you would love to see change? I don't know about you, but there's areas in my life where I ask myself, why am I still dealing with this? Why, why after years it's the same thing every year. Why, why am I not seeing change in this area? Why, why does it seem like the same fear comes back year after year, the same anxiety, the same depression, the same habit, the same addiction? Why, why am I not changing? You know, I look at the last 10 years of, of leading this church as a pastor and some of the mistakes I've made, and, and, and I ask, like, why couldn't I figure that out early? Why couldn't I made some changes early on so I didn't have to go through that pain, so I didn't have to make that mistake? You see, I think a lot of us here tonight would love to change. I think a lot of us would love to see areas of our life change, but at times we feel stuck. Well, here's the good news. What Paul gives us tonight in chapter 4 is a very clear process of how you change, but more than that, what it does is it dramatically increases the rate of change. Because here's the truth. As a Christian, all of us are changing. You, you cannot help but to change as a believer. The question is, how quickly are you changing? You see, when I became a Christian, there were areas of my life that changed very, very quickly, and then there were other areas that seemed to lag behind. They changed, but it, it was almost microscopic. You really couldn't see the change. Well, what Paul does is he gives us something that will dramatically increase the rate of change for areas in your life. And if I look at the areas of my life that changed very quickly, it was because I bought into what he shows us today. So let's, let's, let's look at this. And I'm going to start by giving you a foundational truth for change. The secret to change is not trying harder. The secret to change is not trying harder. Harder. In fact, oftentimes, the harder you try, the further you get from change. 
the harder you try, it's like you go deeper and deeper into whatever it is. I was talking to a guy in our church a few weeks ago who recently found Christ in our church. And there's some areas in his life he wants to change. And he comes from a background where he knows how to work really, really hard. And he said to me, he goes, I I know what I need to do. And I know if I just work hard enough, I can make the changes that God wants me to make. And I had to stop him and say, no, 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 no. It doesn't work that way in Christianity. That's the way it works in the world. You work hard to be successful, but the kingdom of God works in complete opposites. The harder you work, the further you get from change. So the secret is not trying harder. So I want to show you what Paul says about how we invite God, how we cooperate with God to see change in our life. Ephesians 4 verse 17, this I say, therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk, you should no longer live, you should no longer behave as the rest of the Gentiles walk or behave or live. Now, the word Gentile in context here, Paul recognizes there's only two groups of people on planet Earth. There are only two people groups. There are Gentiles and there are Christians, and that's it. Everyone in the world falls into one of these two categories. You're either a Christian, you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, or you are a Gentile, which is just an old Bible word that means you're not a believer. You're not a Christian. You haven't given your life to Jesus. That's all the word Gentile means. It wasn't a nationality. It wasn't a people group. It was just anyone who had not given their life to Christ yet in the Bible was called a Gentile. And what Paul is saying is the first thing we got to realize is once you come to Christ, once you become a Christian, once you surrender your life, you are totally different as a Christian from an unbeliever. You, you overnight become totally different than an unbeliever. Now, this is not a source of pride where you have permission to look down on other people. Because the truth is, every single person you ever meet has an opportunity to see this difference happen in their life by surrendering to Jesus. So this is not something that, that says, I'm better than other people. This just says, I'm different because of God's grace. So it's not a pride that looks down on people. It's just a, it's an appreciation of God's grace that makes me different, but it's a difference that's available to everyone. So Paul outlines four areas in these first few verses that we are different. The first is in our mind, we think differently. Think about what you used to think about before you became a Christian. For some of you, you never considered going to church on a Sunday. That thought did not cross your mind. And if it did, it was incredibly rare. But now that you have surrendered your life to Christ, you think about going to church more often. You think differently. The way Paul puts it is the unbelievers or the Gentiles, they have this futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, a futility, a pointlessness, a purposelessness. You see, when you become a Christian, you think differently. There's a purpose to your life now. You're living for something bigger than yourself. Now, you may think, well, no, I I know a lot of people that aren't Christians that have a vision, they have a goal, they have a purpose for their life. Yes, but their purpose ends with their life. You see, if your purpose is achieving a certain dollar figure or a certain you know, rank at your company or, or promotion or job or worldly achievement, what does that matter a million years from today? How does that really make any difference in your life long term? 
Because the part of your life you get here on earth is incredibly short compared to the span of your life. You see, as a believer, I realize there's a purpose to my life. What I do matters, and what I do is going to matter millions of years from today. And so I live my life on purpose. I think differently about everything I have. I think differently about money. I think differently about my time. I think differently about my talent and my energy because there's a purpose to my life. I'm different now that I'm a Christian. In other areas, he says we're different in our spirit. We, we relate differently. He goes on to say, being alienated from the life of God. We're alienated. We're disconnected. We don't have a relationship with God because of ignorance. And it doesn't mean they're stupid. It means they just don't know. Ignorance is, I don't know. I don't know God. I don't have a relationship with God. I haven't, my spirit hasn't come alive. You see, the spirit part of you is the only part of you that can connect to God. And when you're born on earth, you're born spiritually dead. That's why we say when you become a Christian, you're born again, and all that means is your spirit comes alive to be able to connect to God. Before you're born again, there's a wall between you and God. You can pray as much as you want to pray, but there's no relationship. There's no connection because your spirit is the only part of you that can communicate with God, and if your spirit is dead, you're alienated from God. And the truth is, almost everybody prays. But the question is, are you praying with a relationship where God's actually hearing you. Here's a guy that's been working on my house. I think I told this story. He's been doing some construction at my house, and this guy just loves the fact that he does not forgive people. Like, he takes pride in his grudges. Like, I don't forgive. Forgiveness is for weak people. But then he talks about, you know, well, I know God. I, I pray every day. I talk to God every day. And I had to break the news to him. I said, you know what Jesus said about prayer? And he's like, what did Jesus say? What? Well, I showed him the chapter, and Jesus said, look, if you go to the altar to pray and you, you have unforgiveness in your heart, before you pray, you need to go make it right so that God can hear your prayer. He said, what do you mean? God doesn't hear my prayer. I said, that's not me. It's Jesus said it. You see, we're alienated. When your spirit comes alive, you've got a, you've got a relationship. Another area is in our hearts. We, we feel differently. We feel differently. We, we have different feelings about life. It says, because of the blindness of their heart. You see, if you don't see God clearly, you're not going to feel close to God. So many people have the wrong attitude of God. It's like the parable of the talents. The one servant said, I knew you to be a hard master. His heart was blind to who God really was. And as a result, he didn't have a good relationship. He didn't feel close to God. You're never going to feel close to God until you see him clearly. Until you see him as a father that loves you and adores you and has forgiven you, you're not going to feel close to him. It's just going to be a dead, cold religion. And then finally, Paul says, in our souls. In our souls. Our souls is where we commit. It's our mind, will, and emotion. As believers, we commit differently. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but we're on this commitment of growth. We're on a commitment of progress. You see, here... The picture of an unbeliever, he says, who being past feeling, so their souls have become insensitive or desensitized, having given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness and greediness. It's a picture of life without Christ. See, a life without Christ is a life where you're just driven for sensuality. Because it's the only happiness, it's the only pleasure you'll ever know. You see, as a Christian, this life that we live is the worst it'll ever get. As a non-Christian, this life we live is the best it'll ever get. 
And so I'm on this constant lust for more. I'm this constant lust for sensuality and pleasure because this is as good as it's ever going to be for me. Because once I die, it goes downhill. As a believer, I'm not living for this life because I have something greater that I'm living for. You see, the problem is you have this lust for more, but it'll never satisfy because you have this God-sized hole inside of you and you could fill it with money and fill it with pleasure and fill it with success. It'll never fill the hole. You'll always want more. It'll never be enough. As a believer, that hole is filled in my heart. I can, I can live with a level of contentment. I can be driven as a believer to live my life and, and it's full, but I can also be content at the same time I'm driven. And so change, this is the key. Again, change is not trying harder. Let me put it like this. Change begins with who you are, not with what you do. It's who you are. That's why Paul is showing you how you're different. You're different. You're different. This is who you are. You're different than other people. This is who you are. Because once you recognize who you are, it'll impact what you do. But change is not about what you do. That's why we say it's not about trying harder. In other words, you can put it like this. Change begins with actually knowing Christ, not knowing about Christ. Again, there are people who can win at Bible trivia all day long who don't have a relationship with God. They know all about Christ. They have a religion, but they don't know him. And as a result, they don't change very much. In fact, some of the meanest people you've ever met know more about Christ than anybody else. Like They got all the knowledge. They got all the religion, but they don't know him. Do you have a relationship or do you have a religion? That's why Jesus, the way he puts change, the power of change, he says in John 8, then you'll know the truth. You'll know the truth, and the truth will change you. The truth will set you free. The truth will help you grow. The truth will help you stop doing whatever it is you've wanted to stop doing. Well, what is the truth? Well, he tells us clearly a little bit later in John 14, I am the truth. You see, when you know him, you'll change. Change begins in knowing him. Change begins in the truth of who he is. So then how do we stop doing what we don't want to do? Well, the most powerful verses in the Bible on true change is verses 20 to 24. He puts it like this. You have not so learned Christ. Again, it's all about knowing him and understanding him and having a relationship with him. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, literally in Jesus. He goes, that you put off, put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul gives us a three-step outline for change, a three-step outline to become what we all want to be in Christ. Step one put off the old self. That's not who I am anymore. In fact, this is the clearest picture of water baptism we have. Water baptism is the funeral for who you used to be. This is the person I used to be before I found Christ, and we're going we're, we're gonna to drown them in water baptism. I'm going to be water baptized, and the old person that I used to be is going to be drowned, and it's the funeral ceremony because I'm putting that person off. It's no longer who I am. That is not me anymore. And that's why water baptism is very important for a believer, because it's the funeral of putting off 
the old self. Then be renewed in the mind. You've got to change the way you think. Because you believed a certain thing all your life. You've had certain thoughts, certain patterns, certain framework your whole life. And you've got to renew your mind. And then finally you put on righteousness. You put it on like a jacket. It, it's your new identity. It's who you are. You put it on. And this is why we say often as a church, right believing produces right doing. You want to change your behavior, you've got to change your beliefs. Every bad behavior you have, every addiction, every habit, everything that you want to break in your life is rooted to something you believe. And if you will change what you believe, you will change what you do. And that's what Paul is saying. Let me put it like this. Physically speaking, you are what you eat, right? Physically, you are what you eat. You, you eat a lot of Krispy Kreme, you look like a donut. That's just the reality. You are what you eat. You eat really good, healthy food. You feel good and healthy. You eat terrible food. Your body, your body will begin to show in all sorts of testing and, and, and lab work and everything else. Your body will begin to show who you are by what you eat. Physically, you are what you eat. Spiritually, you are what you think. Think about that for a moment. Physically, you are what you eat. Spiritually, you are what you think. What do you think about? And when I counsel people and they're dealing with weird fears and anxieties and depressions, I always ask, well, what are you feeding your mind? Well, I'm binging on Netflix all day. Well, no wonder. Look at your diet. Your diet will tell you everything. Well, I've got all this anxiety about the world falling apart. How much news do you watch? Well, I watch the news all day. Well, no wonder. Look at your diet. There's nothing wrong with watching the news. There's nothing wrong with watching a TV show. But what are you consuming? What are you listening to? What are you feeding on constantly? Because spiritually speaking, you are what you think. Proverbs puts it like this, for as he thinks within himself, so is he. As you think within yourself, what you feed your mind, what you consume mentally is going to show spiritually in your life. So let me give you a couple keys for how this all works practically in our life. First, let's talk about putting off. The first step, Paul says, you got to put off the old person. You, you, you got you to get rid of what you used to be. Let me give you three keys. First, remember. Remember, 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 remember. Never try to put on the new before you put off the old. Don't try to put on the new before you put off the old. Because the goal of Christianity is not to make a better version of the old you. The goal of Christianity is to make a new you, to renew you, to make you brand new. Jesus said it like this, don't put new wine in old wineskins. It's not going to work. And what we do, especially in our culture, I don't know why our generation, more than any other generation, we like to superimpose things. We say to ourselves, well, there's my old life. I like this and this and that for my old life, and I like this and this and this for my new life. I'm just going to mix it all together. Like, I don't want to give up doing this because I really enjoy that, and I don't want to let go of that, but I do like this and I like this, and so I'm just going to add it all together. It will never work. It's going to kill you. It's going to pull you apart. It'll burst at the seams, Jesus says, when you try to live that way. The truth is you have to give Jesus a blank slate. When you come to Christ, you got to give him a blank slate. you got to say, hey, here's my values. I'm going to give you a blank slate. You help me figure out what my values are. I know this is what I used to believe, but I want to give you a blank slate so you can help me figure out what I need to believe. 
You, you know an area, and I don't want to step on too many toes, but you know an area we do this really badly as Christians? Our political views. We come to Christ with a political view, as opposed to coming to Christ with a blank slate and say, God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, this is what I used to believe politically, this is where I used to lean politically, but now that I'm a Christian, I'm going to give you a blank slate, and I want you to help me see where I should stand. I want you to speak to me through your word. I don't want to, I, I don't want to just try to figure out, you know, I don't want to find verses in the Bible that seem to support where I lean. I just want to give you a blank slate, and you guide and direct what I should believe. Jesus put it like this. Jesus is very serious about this stuff, by the way. He said, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you have to give up your values, your priorities, the way you think about money, the way you think about time, the way you think about politics. I want you to give up everything. I want you to give it all. I want you to come to me with a blank slate, and if you cannot give me a blank slate, you cannot be my disciple. Because I want to help rewrite your priorities. I want to help rewrite your values. So again, don't try to put on the new until you've put off the old. Second, remember the old sinful nature is dead. We had a funeral at your water baptism for who you used to be. That's not you anymore. I love Romans 6. It puts it like this. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Count yourself dead. Why? Because Jesus died for you. And when he died for you, he took the old you and crucified him on the cross with him. How does this work? How do you count yourself dead? See, here's the problem with this verse. It's hard for me to count myself dead every time I sin. Because every time I sin, I feel like a sinner. I don't feel dead to sin. I feel very alive to sin when I sin. So how do I count myself dead? Well, it's like this. If you're taking a test and you absolutely fail the test, count yourself 100 anyways. Now, don't let your kids do that. I've got a kid doing homeschool, and he loves to do that if I would let him. You know, he'll fail the test and give himself 100 every time. So, so you can't do that with children. But for you, the way Christianity works is even if you fail the test, you grade yourself 100. That's what it means to count yourself dead to sin. I know you just sinned. I know you just blew it. I knew you just made a mistake. But you got to count yourself dead to it. you got to count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Grade yourself 100 every time. Because again, you will begin to believe it. And if you begin to believe it, your behavior will begin to line up with your beliefs. That's what Paul is talking about here. And then finally, remember I'm free from the law. If you're going to put off the old self, you've got to remember you're free from the law because rules cannot produce growth. I love 2 Corinthians. It says it this way, the old way, don't go, don't go the old way. As your friend, don't go the old way. It hurts. It doesn't work. The old way, trying to be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments, trying to be saved by being a very good Christian, by following all the rules, by obeying the law. No, that will end in death. But the new way, that's what Paul is talking about, the new way, the Holy Spirit gives them life. What is the new way? Believe. Believe, and then the belief will change your behavior. It's grace. Now, the law is not a bad thing. Don't ever look at the law as bad or evil. The law will just lead to death if you try to be saved by the law. But the law is not bad. Can I tell you this? It's a really good thing for you not to murder somebody. Like, that's good for you. 
It's really good for your marriage not to commit adultery. The law is not bad. This is the way you need to look at the law. The law is the flight plan. The law is God's flight plan for where God wants you to go, but you can't accomplish the flight plan without fuel. The fuel is grace. The fuel is the new way. You've got to get the grace so that you can live according to the flight plan because the flight plan alone cannot save you. It just shows you what's best for you. Now, when putting on the new, that's how to put off the old. When putting on the new, let me give you one key for putting on the new before we close. You got to remember the Spirit has already made you new. How do you put on the new? Remember that I'm already new. That's how you put it on. You've got to remind yourself, I'm already new. God already made me new. Why? 2 Corinthians 5 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has said yes to Jesus, they are a new creation. The old is gone. It's not who you are anymore. It's not your identity. The new has come. Here's your new identity. This is who you are. You're not creating the new. God's creating the new. You're just putting it on. You're just taking the new and putting it on. Now, I know some of you are thinking, look, this, this is great. This, this is, you know, is another one of those messages that sounds so great and it sounds so wonderful and it feels so good, but this doesn't work in real life. Like, I love this whole thing that I'm new in Christ and the sinful part of me is dead and, and all of that stuff. But if it's dead, why do, why do I still hear it? Why, why do I still hear it, you know, rumbling inside of me? Why do I still feel it from time to time, desiring things that I know are going to hurt, but why do I want them so bad? I know it's not right, but why do I keep doing it? Paul said it in Romans 7. He said, why do I keep doing that what I don't want to do? See, the truth is, yes, you are dead to sin. That is a legal fact, but you still got some desires inside of you for sin. That's why he says, count yourself dead to sin. Because here's the delay in our life. The delay of change for you, the, 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 the rate of change in your life, it's all contingent on this, what you believe versus who you are. There's who you are, and there's what you believe. And the closer you get those two to alignment, the faster you change in your life. See, who are you? You're forgiven. You're righteous. You're loved. You're accepted. You're worthy in the sight of God. That's your identity. You're righteous. What do you believe? Well, God's kind of disappointed in me. I'm not working hard enough. I'm not doing enough. So no wonder you're not changing. Who you are is contradicting what you believe. You've got to get those in alignment. You got to see yourself the way God sees you because the reason we still have these sinful desires inside, even though we are dead to sin, we still have sinful desires because you've had a lifetime of habits and patterns that you've created and that you've built. And so your flesh is still hungry for certain things. And the quicker you change those things, it's all about changing your mind. It's about renewing your mind. It's about changing what you believe. And then all of a sudden, your appetites change and your desires change. See, the key is you have to understand you're legally new. The moment you became a Christian, you legally became righteous. Legally became righteous. I don't feel righteous. I don't always behave righteously. That's okay. You're legally righteous. You have to count yourself dead to sin. Now, how do we renew our mind to actually embrace this truth? 
Well, throughout Ephesians, Paul makes it very, very clear. How did... How does this renewal of the mind work? How do I renew the mind? How do I begin to believe this? There's two ways that Paul outlines all throughout Ephesians. The first is in community. That's why groups are so important to us as a church. We all need a group. I change through relationships. I need people in my life that love me, that care about me, that see my blind spots. I have blind spots. There are areas of my life that my beliefs don't line up with my faith, and, and I need people to point those out to me, say, hey, 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 you're not believing clearly right now. You've got this blind spot over here. You need to work through this. And, and I need that in my life. This is why relationships are critical. We need to be in groups as believers. I need to meet with people on a regular basis so that I can begin to believe who I am. People help. Let me illustrate it like this. If you adopt a 12-year-old child, legally, they become part of your family the day the adoption goes through, legally speaking. So legally, they are your child. But how many know they're not going to feel like your child right away? It's going to take some time before they feel at home. It's going to take some time before they feel like they belong. How do they go through the process of feeling like they belong they live in a loving community. They live with a loving family and they're accepted and they're cared for and they're loved and there's consistency. And over time, if the family is healthy, that adopted child will begin to feel like one of them. That adopted child will begin to feel like they belong. But it'll never happen if the child is left on their own and neglected. It'll only happen if the child is in community in relationship with the rest of the family. The same is true for you. The moment you became a Christian, you were legally God's. You were legally righteous. You were legally dead to sin, but you don't feel it right away. And so in community, you begin to renew your mind. You begin to think clearly. You begin to see yourself the way God sees you, and that transformation begins to take place. And then the second way we see all throughout Scripture and all throughout Ephesians is conviction. There needs to be an inner conviction. And I think community is one of the things the Holy Spirit leads to inner conviction in our life. And this is the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit, to convince you that you are right with God. Again, I don't need the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to believe I'm a sinner. That's easy for me to believe. All I've got to do is look at my behavior, and I feel like a sinner. I need the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to believe I'm righteous even when I don't deserve it. To believe I'm righteous even when I failed the test. To count myself dead to sin even when I failed. That's what I need the Holy Spirit for. And that's why Paul says in verse 24, put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness. The new man was created in righteousness. And we're to put that on. You see, the picture that God gave me this week for what many of us do, is the Holy Spirit has made you this beautiful, custom, $10,000 designer suit. The most beautiful Italian designer suit you could possibly imagine. I mean, and you put that thing on, you're going to feel like different wearing that nice suit. And yet what so many of us do is we're still trying to sew filthy rags together to show God we, we belong. 
We're sewing all these filthy rags together, and they don't fit, and they don't look good, and it's all a mess, and, and we're trying to show off to God, God, look, 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 and God's like, look, throw those rags away. You're never going to be good enough. You're never going to make a suit as beautiful as the one I've given you. Just put on my righteousness. Clothe yourself in my right and begin to see yourself the way I see you. So let me leave you with this thought. A renewed mind has the ability to see something the way God sees it. And you know what the most important thing for you to see is? Yourself. The most important thing for you to begin to see is the way God sees you. How does God see you? He sees you as loved. He sees you as a son or a daughter. He sees you as a prince or a princess. He sees you as royalty. He sees you as his very own, accepted, worthy, forgiven. And if you'll renew your mind, again, through community and conviction, and begin to see yourself the way God sees you, you're going to see areas in your life begin to change that you've longed to change. It's all rooted in your identity. It's not about trying harder. It's about believing the right things. Would you close your eyes with me for a moment? If you're here today and you haven't even received the first gift of God, which is his grace and forgiveness, to even become a Christian, before we go any further, I want to invite you to give your life to Christ fully today. To say, Jesus, I need you. And I'm willing today to surrender my life to you. If that's you, I want you to take your hands and I want you to just hold them over your heart with me. No one looking around, just hold your hands over your heart. And I want you to pray this with me and, and Jesus can hear your heart today. Just in your heart right now, say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I admit that I am a sinner and I am lost without you. Forgive me of all of my sins. Thank you for your grace. I am now yours forever. In Jesus' name.